0: Welcome to the Rethinking Security podcast, where we bring a diverse range of voices from across the UK and beyond to discuss and explore security.
1: Welcome back to Centering Human Security, Rethinking Security's podcast, looking at various human security issues. And today we're joined by two activists, Lorraine Mopinella and Emily Apple. Welcome to you both, and welcome to our listeners. In this podcast series, we've been unpacking the differences between human security and national security, what security policy looks like in its current form, and what it could look like if people, rather than the state, and the maintenance of existing power relationships were prioritised. If that doesn't make sense, check out our episode one. Um, We've also covered two big components of human security, our ecological and environmental security and the impact of climate change. And economic security, in other words, having a financially sufficient and stable life. And this week we want to return to some of the policies and practices that are part of the national security apparatus in the UK. National security is often described as the defence of borders and protecting the people inside them. Policing and border control are part of this hard or militarised approach to security and today I want to talk with our guests about how this approach is experienced by people who are on the receiving end of this hard security and find out what's going on in the policy world and government that facilitates this. In today's episode of Centering Human Security we are joined by two activists Lorraine Mopinella and Emily Apple. so welcome to you both.
2: Uh, hi everyone, my name is Roraine, uh Marcia Mponera. I'm originally from Malawi, but I live in Coventry now. I am now a refugee from last year, but uh, I've been an asylum seeker for the past seven years. Uh, so in Coventry, I'm part of Coventry Asylum and Refugee Action Group, in short, Calag and CALAG is a signatory for Status Now for All campaign, which campaigns for status legalization of all migrants who need uh, legal status in this country. So I represent CALAG on Status Now for All campaign. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And um, you wrote a blog post for Rethinking Security back at the beginning of the COVID lockdown, I think. So um, we'll have some links to all those organisations and to that blog post in our podcast description. And Emily, would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Yeah, hello. I'm Emily Apple. I'm the media coordinator at Campaign Against Arms Trade. I'm also one of the founding members of the network for Police Monitoring.
1: Great. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us. And um, just to say, Campaign Against Arms Trade are members of Rethinking Security. So it's great to have both of you here today. We can't cover all the issues related to policing, border control and other internal or domestic security policies like counter-terror but Rethinking Security has a number of members who work across those issues and we take it as a given that we're living in an increasingly tightened um, so-called security environment in the UK with more draconian policing and harsher immigration policy for example and that these policies have a disproportionately negative impact on the human security and day-to-day lives of people of colour and others who are minoritised in the UK. Um, So Emily and Lorraine, it's really clear at the moment that the rhetoric around crime and immigration is all about a certain kind of security, securing the UK's borders, stopping people being here illegally, as it's called, um, and tightening security around protest, as well as being tough on crime. In fact, very recently, legislation has been passed on crime and immigration that is pretty oppressive and, let's be honest, quite brutal in its approach. But I'm kind of interested to start this discussion, taking a bit of a longer view. um, And I wondered if you could give us a bit of background on how we've got here. Um, Maybe, Lorraine, first of all, you could tell us a bit more about how we have got to this very punishing climate for immigrants and particularly for asylum seekers and refugees you know, open up just talking a bit about border control.
2: I understand a hostile environment has its long history from maybe 1940s or something like that. But myself, because I've been here for maybe last 14 years or so, so the experience that I have had is mainly around from 2012 when Theresa May came in, and a lot of changes were were brought in so i also understand that the home office uses what some people call the 4d strategy which is if someone was working they would stop you from working you become destitute um they will detain you so that you can be deported and then the 4D, some people talk about death, where all these 4Ds, all these 3Ds, destitution, detention, and deportation, people we have seen people dying along um, along the way. It It, it is quite, it, it has been like <laughs> a sad issue upon another sad issue, because yeah. recently we have heard about... Um, keeping people in a badge. I, I don't even know how yeah. to pronounce it, but it's a floating, yeah, some campaigners are calling it floating prison where asylum seekers up to 500 will be housed in this floating um, barge. It's My question is why can't people stay in the community where everyone mm. else is? Why should people be, you know, put isolated in on, on top of water and stuff like that. Even for the illegal migration bill, there are no safe routes for people to get here. So if people try and they're running away for their lives and they manage to get here, apparently they cannot they cannot claim asylum.
1: I understand that that is illegal um, in terms of international law around asylum, and hopefully um, this that will be challenged in the courts, but. To me it, it it seems to have such an impact on the human security of people who are already fleeing persecution or war or economic hardship and even climate breakdown as well. It seems not just to be about um, hostility against a few people, but blanket policies that, as you say, create these four ds. Emily, I don't know if you want to say if you could say a little bit more about the militarization of of borders,
0: Yeah, so we're seeing increasing militarisation of borders and there's an increasing crossover between the arms companies that profit from causing death and destruction in people's homelands and then causing people to flee. And mm-hmm. then those same companies making vast profits from the militarization of borders. And so we've got companies like Thales, like Airbus, like Leonardo, mm-hmm. that are all major players in the arms trade that are also involved in border control. And a lot of that is to do with surveillance, surveillance drones, um, but also the sort of mechanisms for um, controlling people, for, for trying to keep people
1: out. What, what kinds of mechanisms are those? Could you give some examples?
0: So when we're sort of talking about drone technology, Thales make the drone that is used um, across the channel to try and monitor small boats. So, yes, yeah, so they, they make the watchkeeper drone that they've made in conjunction with Elbit Systems, um, the Israeli arms company and they use that for channel control. Um, British Aerospace have a massive contract with the government for border control and surveillance and monitoring people. And like so much of this, this seems to be about profit for these companies rather than human lives mm. and as i said the same companies are profiting from killing people around the globe are also profiting from the hostile environment and trying to repress and turn back people seeking sanctuary on our shores
1: mm. why do you think that hard security approach is taken you know is is it just because Um, these powerful companies are making money or what's happening at a policy level in Westminster and in, I guess, mainly in this discussion today in the Home Office in particular to encourage that. Are there links between national security, the sort of the foreign policy part of security and internal security in the UK?
0: I mean, most of the links at the moment seem to be about scapegoating Mm. and We've seen, when we were talking about the context and the bigger picture and the longer term picture, we've seen successive governments moving further and further to the right in terms of the rights of refugees and asylum seekers. And we've seen government policy mimicking the policies of far right groups. And so many of these groups are using these issues as a way of scapegoating asylum seekers and refugees, for example, saying our health services are stretched, our local services are stretched, and all these things that are a massive failure of government Mm. and years of austerity. It's now very easy for the government to say, oh, well, this is the fault of all these people coming to our shores, rather than actually addressing why these things are a problem. And, and so it becomes a sort of matter of convenience and mm. scapegoating rather than genuine concerns about security.
1: Mm. There's a lot of talk about security, but maybe it's not really to do with that. Lorraine, what, what do you think about that? Why do you think this this approach is taken by government to immigrants? Um, and why why do we have this like militarised border control?
2: Yeah, like Emilia has talked about scapegoating mm. But I also feel like it's yeah, so that we we can be divided so that we are pointing fingers at each other and divided and increase the you know racial divisions and all all sorts of things because if we see some policies for example, like the what do they call it prevent yeah thing which is targeting. Islam or Muslim, I confused the two words how to use them, but...
1: The idea is that it prevents radicalization of anyone for anything, but it is mainly targeting Muslims. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And then we have Stop and search, which just looks, mainly it looks at the colour of people, and in this case young black people who are more affected, and all of these. And the way also people have been criminalized for smaller crimes, for example, if someone is hungry and has gone to work because they are not allowed to work and then you are criminalized, you are detained, you are deported, to me I'm thinking the, the reaction, the fact that someone was looking for food and he went and worked just to get money to, to buy food for himself, but being punished in the form of detention center and deportation, I've, I feel like it's it's just way, way too much. It's over proportion,
1: or the punishment doesn't really fit the crime. Yeah, um, in those yeah. cases, and so it's it seems like you're both saying that really, the the policy is, poli- these security policies are the fact that these security policies are exist are to divide us, to scapegoat some against the other, and and particularly um create racial divisions. So in episode one we looked at the way that national security is about dominance, security that's about having power over people rather than a security that works for everyone and that includes people in policy making um, about their own security and human security. And I'd like to come on to that and this just to hear a bit more from both of you about how policing and border control or immigration control, um, which seem to be a lot more in- intrusive, um, how that affects people, people's day-to-day lives. Emily, you're part of the police monitoring group as well. It'd be interesting to hear some more from you on that. And just I was talking to someone who um is a refugee and was an asylum seeker, and she told me that. In the hotel that she was put into when she first arrived um during covid even if they moved around the hotel to different rooms or different floors they would be they would have body searches all the time which seems completely unnecessary um and it's it's that i guess that kind of thing that you know i feel like there must be a lot of that happening it'd be great to hear some more just to, just to help people understand how that affects the day-to-day lives and human security of people on the receiving end of these policies.
0: Yeah, I mean, examples like that are just completely obscene and there is so much of this that is about control and surveillance and that constant harassment... And I think there's an issue when we talk about things like harassment, like surveillance, that we don't talk enough about the impact Mm. of that. Stopwatch's um, research into the Gang's Matrix, when that was operational, showed this as well, that the mental health impact of being stopped and searched all the time, for example, of the police harassing you all the time, is massive. And we're endorsing these policies that really do have a huge impact on people's well-being, because it's that feeling of being under constant threat, under constant surveillance. And then when you're talking about asylum seekers and refugees, and you're talking about people who've had deeply traumatic experiences that have led them to flee and quite often experiences with military and police Mm. and then you're putting them in this highly securitized environment in this highly oppressive environment and the impact that people that has on people's existing trauma and it's not a way we should be treating people it completely lacks humanity Mm. and that day-to-day sort of grinding effect of, of harassment is immense. And I know it from personal experience of the police. And, you know, I don't suggest for any stretch of the imagination that's anything compared to what minority, minorities, minoritized communities go through. But I know I was subject to what was called at the time harassment style policing, where the police would deliberately target organisers of protest of protests, to deter them and disrupt what they were doing and that led to me having mm. a sort of mental health breakdown because they followed me into my dreams they were following me all the time they were stopping and searching me all the time they were arbitrarily arresting me mm. and that has such a massive impact and you have to say sort of like if the aim of your policy is to deter someone through to from doing something through harassment, what are you endorsing in terms mm. of what impact you're you're happy to have on their mental health, and um, and for people as I say who have already experienced trauma, that is so magnified and so intense, and needs to be
1: stopped. Thank you for that, Lorraine. Would you like to say anything about the that is that how you would describe um, immigration policy in day to day life? Is it like harassment?
2: It 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 is a form of harassment because it, I wanted to to talk about hotels. When you mentioned about hotels, I have a friend who has a status though, so they moved them into a into a hotel, but he's saying even though we are in hotels, we have to sign in, sign out, and then from certain time, whether it's ten or eleven, you can't go in, and and all of that. So, yeah. I I don't know whether that is to do with the hotel security or it's to do with the rules that they have been given to say, uh, this is how um, asylum seekers living at this hotel should be be treated, I'm not sure. Yeah, so in terms of day-to-day, because we have seen, I don't know if there have been any changes at the moment where... um, you know schools and the hospitals and the banks they were supposed to be reporting people or to not allow people to open bank accounts to not allow people to have driving licenses in some workplaces we have seen in the past where actually even the employer is the one who call on the home office to come and um so that they can come and take people who do not have papers and and stuff like that but all it's because employers are living with fear and therefore they you know they're like okay we need to comply and tell home office about this that's how so to me all of that is if you are at work and that is actually happening when you are on i can't imagine how people feel feeling that actually we we have been conned to be at this place now so that home office can come and raid on us and we have heard even uh, fatal incidences where, for example, in the past, we've heard about uh, death, where way immigration officers have raided um, uh, in workplaces
1: mm-hmm. and,
2: uh, yeah, people die in the process. There was wow. a young, yeah, there was a young, um, I think he was Sudanese, 23 year old, who was working at a car wash, something like that. So when they evaded the car wash, the boy was running and he went on top of the roof. He fell from the roof and that was it. Really? Wow.
1: Yeah. That's tragic. Very sad. Very despicable as well that policies that are somehow designed to create security for this country, although I don't really understand how that works, create such insecurity for people that it leads um, to their passing.
2: Hmm. and then we've seen also the drowning how
1: yeah
2: it's been going on and on but it continues at a very high with a very high numbers
1: yeah you why? mentioned because, sorry yeah
2: yeah i wanted to say why because there are no safe routes and people are trying to get to places of safety but in the end they end up Dying in Mediterranean Sea mm-hmm. or dying in the deserts. I I recently saw saw a very disturbing video of how people are dying in the deserts and it's it's just yeah. But it's because eh, there are no none safe routes. People can yeah.
1: Yeah. This open. this new legislation that um as you said earlier, the right remains to claim asylum through safe and legal routes. But if there are none, it's impossible. Yeah. I want to come now to ask you both what a human security approach would look like so we describe or the un describes human security as security policy that's centered on humans and we would also include our ecosystem the planet in that as well security that is about putting people first and ensuring issues like our food security our economic security our health um, our housing is taken care of rather than starting from a national c- security perspective, um think how can we keep the state secure, the status quo, um the same power dynamics? Do you think human security is a useful framework for rethinking policy um towards immigration and policing? and um, what what would that look like to you? Yeah. so i'm I'm
2: someone who believes in the power of community i think as communities we should we should also live in solidarity with each other if a problem affects me as lorraine if the community takes it as our problem it means we will address those problems together and then that we are trying and create a world that we all want to live Mm. and live safely whether it's a is a migrant or not yeah but i also think all these detention centers that we have i don't think they are uh necessary and there are some i i i i feel like they should just you know they should just close Mm -hmm. basically and the way i see sometimes things like someone maybe committed a crime but they have a family they have children here they've all all their life have been here maybe they came as a four-year-old but we still see them kind of like being deported. So mm-hmm. I see. I I think if there are some some things need to change, there have to be some certain form of saying this person was a national over here, although he came from over there, and when he was a child. But all his life is built around here. So if there can be real policy changes in terms of things that we see, actually this person doesn't even know the country where they're deporting them to. So Mm. if, yeah, if they can look into some of these policies that are really harmful, because if a father or a mother is leaving her old children here and then they're deported, I don't see that that's that's Mm. fair to any of them as well as to the country itself. Mm.
1: Yeah, so there's a real need to... To look at the harm that specific policies do, um, yes. and change them. Yeah. yeah, Emily. What about you? Do you think human security is like a useful framework for rethinking those kind of policies, or, or is there? I mean, I understand that there's certain groups or and communities that feel that security is such a negative word. It's not something, not language that they would use, but is it, do you think human security is a useful tool or is there other language that would be better for kind of trying to challenge these policies?
0: So I think it's, I mean, it's obviously a better term and it's sort of useful within that context because unless, like it, it, it just makes no sense that we see things in isolation, that we don't count the uk's colonial past and colonial present when, when we're talking about immigration policy that we don't look at the cri- climate crisis that we don't look at where we're selling weapons to where wars are being fought where the uk's got some culpability in that and as a sort of global community sort of rethinking how we frame everything um
2: mm. <laughs>
0: Instead of this sort of artificial notion of borders and privilege over which lines on the map we we were born into, so I think in that in that sense it is helpful. But I'm also an abolitionist, and I don't believe that our current system of policing and borders can be reformed, like the police as it stands. know the UK police force cannot be reformed it's been shown time and time again that it can't be reformed so from a sort of radical perspective I Mm -hmm. think we need to be going further than that as well and really looking at how we dismantle these systems and what we can replace them with rather than reframing the terms that Mm. we're using to justify the current systems.
1: Mm. That's really interesting so as an abolitionist, what would you say is, is your priority or, or vision for, for changing things that would make things look different um, around policing and borders, obviously abolishing them? But how, how what does that look like for you? What's the vision?
0: So I think, so I think as Lorraine said, a lot of it comes down to community hmm. and building stronger communities and sort of ha- how we want to live our life. But... Just relooking really at the system that we've got, where we've got a system that's set up for profit, where corporations dominate. Um, there is nothing about our current system that that puts people before profit or puts corporations before profit. Um, and, and when we start dismantling some of those things, and because we have to look at the fact that the police aren't there to serve us as people, we have to look at the actual purpose of the organisation, and and that was to enforce colonialism and it still is to this day and it's to enforce the status quo it's to enforce the government's will and increasingly to enforce the will of corporations when you look at some of the new legislation um for example with the new public order Act, there are so many specific clauses that protect corporate interests from protest um so when we're sort of talking about abolition it's not just about sort of tearing things down it's not saying we're going to have this utopian society but you can't reform organizations that aren't set up to serve the people that they're supposed to represent it just doesn't work unless you look at the sort of bigger picture about why these institutions exist and what their purpose is and you know with the, the police force we've got a police force that is institutionally misogynist that's institutionally racist and time and again you hear senior police officers come and say well it's one or two bad apples or it's this that and the other and it's been shown that it can't be reformed and, and people's lives are at risk while it's not being re- while while we're talking about reform and talking about you know polishing a bit on the side it, it is just not possible but the more we community-based solutions the more that we look at ideas around direct democracy and how we can do more forms of sort of self-government within our communities and devolve that power away from a few powerful interests and corporate interests the more likely it is we're going to have a society that is fit for all of us and our communities rather than a, f- a few rich people and a few corporations.
1: Mm. Thank you and Lorraine does that Chime with what you would say as well about um, the changes to the structures. Um, you mentioned like looking into the harm that's done about them, but also community. Is that building stronger communities? Is that the priority really as well? Yeah, uh, generally myself, <laughs> myself, huh? my,
2: um, I'm so concerned about the pride of oppressed people everywhere. Mm-hmm but I will, I start with where I live, which is here in the UK. So yeah, I, um, I call for dignity for everyone. And more so for migrants who are still, um, in the process of legalizing their status. Mm. That doesn't mean that uh, people who are British, who, who are local, they don't have problems, but uh, I'm just looking at uh, migrants as people who have even more challenges um, especially people who do not have status yet. Mm. So that's where I'm, I am I'm starting from but uh, I'm concerned about um, oppressed people everywhere.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and maybe, maybe just to sum up this way that we are looking at sort of challenging security, this idea that security is built through, well, the mainstream idea that security is sought through dominance um, rather than um, equality and inclusion. Would that be something that you both would agree on, that security or even community security comes through equality and inclusion rather than dominant? But is there anything else that either of you would like to say that we haven't covered? For
2: me, I guess to conclude, what I would say is I would want to see a change in the way people are treated Mm. generally and more so in the um, arms of government that are used on, on migrants, refugees, as well as asylum seekers. We want better treatment for everyone so that we can rebuild our lives thank you i agree that equality and inclusion
0: has to be at the heart of what we're doing at the, At the moment we've we've got a system that is managed through fear and through creating a climate that is just not sustainable that mm. is just obscene that is hurting people that is killing people And we need to move beyond that and we need to look at the mechanisms to move beyond that, both in the short term and and the longer term. We find that through equality and inclusion and we find that through communities and, and cooperation. And you find that most people you talk to don't want to be part of this hostile environment, that they don't want to be part of sort of racist border policies. So, you know, I live in Cornwall and we've just, had the Bibby Stockholm in in Falmouth, and I've been part of the sort of campaign against
1: it. Could you say and, what that is, just for listeners who might so, not know? Yeah,
0: so yeah, so the Bibby Stockholm is the prison barge that we were talking about yeah. earlier, and it got brought to Falmouth for refitting. At immense cost and again it's another one of these policies that the government's claimed is going to save money but research has shown that it's not actually going to save any money and so Mm. all these people who are going to be imprisoned and re-traumatised from people who've got severe water trauma anyway by being on a barge. you know that even the stated aim of the policy to save money and what it is about is about punishing people. And but when you talk to people and um, when you do that sort of community work around these issues, you find that most people don't agree with with it. You know, when you talk to people on the streets and like you know, you say, "Look, this barge is here. You know, what do you think about it?" They think it's obscene. So I don't think this the policies of this government necessarily represents people mm. and communities and what they want and think. And, and so we need to be doing that work in our communities. We need to be talking to people. We need to be breaking down these issues. You know, another example from down here, we had the far right protesting against refugees being in a hotel in Newquay. And it was the same kind of things, that, that they were playing on that fear. And they were playing on a community that has suffered under austerity. It suffered from second homeowners it you know that there are huge problems of deprivation in Mm. some of our communities but this is not the fault of refugees and asylum seekers and it's sort of breaking those things down so that we we don't have this culture of fear and oppression we have a culture of cooperation of equality of inclusion because we're having these conversations and actually working out what the real issues are for our communities and where our communities are being manipulated by government policy.
1: Thank you. Um and I really want to thank both of you for giving up your time to discuss this today. We often get asked by supporters of rethinking security and some of our members support the member organisation supporters about the links between militarised security and other justice issues and I think that you've both really helped unpack exactly that today um the connections between this hard approach to security that might look obvious on a national and international level but how that is connected to issues of um, racial justice of justice for migrants in this country and where those connections are you know you've both mentioned the companies that make profit from both of those things then it becomes convenient for us to be divided in policy um, or by policies and in fact actually that that's not really what people want to see and that a security that is about community-based solutions be far more appropriate. And that then links back to the international, that security through inclusion, diplomacy, discussion is also much more beneficial. So thank you both um, for your time today. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you very much.
1: We'll link to lots of your work um, in the description um, so people can check that out. So that's all we've got time for today in the next episode we'll be looking at something that again is both deeply personal and political that is our health and what the differences are between the government's idea of health security and some of our network members and friends who work on the issue so between now and then don't forget to follow us on linkedin and twitter and you can catch up on previous podcast episodes on spotify or soundcloud And you can also sign up for our newsletter and there's plenty more in the description below.